1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And on this snowy day in New York, I have the chance to interview my good friend and colleague, Anna Law, who is the Associate Professor and Herb Kerr's Chair in Constitutional Rights and Political Science at Brooklyn College, CUNY. Uh, Anna Law. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And on this snowy day in New York, I have the chance to interview my good friend and colleague, Anna Law, who is the Associate Professor and Herb Kerr's Chair in Constitutional Rights and Political Science at Brooklyn College, CUNY. Uh, Anna Law, how are you doing today?
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me on the podcast, since everyone's snowed in.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, hopefully by the time this airs, the snow will be gone and everybody can listen to this, but... We've got this nice chance to talk about your book. Uh, The name of your book is The Immigration Battle in American Courts, published by Cambridge University Press originally in 2010, and then the paperback came out in 2014. This book has always been very interesting and has become increasingly timely just over the last couple of weeks, which we'll talk about. But let's first talk about the book itself. this is a a book a, a book of history in many ways uh, in addition to a book of political science. Right. A book of history on the issue of immigration. I wonder if we can start by by asking you how far your research goes back to. Um would you root this book at its sort of starting point?
0: So the book does does two main things. It looks at the judicial branch's role in immigration policy, but the other thing it does is it traces the Supreme Court and the Courts of Appeals, the two highest federal courts in the land, it traces their history and relationship to each other. So the book begins at the inception of the Courts of Appeals, 1890, something, and goes all the way to uh, Bush v. Gore to 2001.
1: And and as you as you just allude, um, you you really track the evolution of the Supreme Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals. And so I wonder if we can talk maybe about some of that evolution in, in some different time periods. What types of immigration issues were these courts addressing, let's say in the 1800s? What what made up the the immigration portfolio of the courts during that time period?
0: It wasn't so much that the types of cases were different. I mean, of course, you know, the nationalities of the people coming uh, at different points in time are different. It's not a lot a whole lot of Mexican immigration cases in the 1800s. and It was, you know, people coming from from Europe um, and Western Europe, to be exact. So but the the change, I mean, most people assume, OK, the, the the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court, the courts of appeals. That is what they are. And these are static institutions that don't change. But over time, these institutions, like Robert McCloskey described the Supreme Court, he said the Supreme Court grew up like a child over time.
1: And what does that mean exactly in terms of the, the set of laws that the courts were dealing with? Uh, so many of the immigration laws that we think about are, are relatively contemporary in, in their passage, the 1965 law and so forth. Um, But but what what did immigration law look like during the eighteen hundreds that must have shaped uh, the the cases that were being brought to these courts? Um, What was what was immigration law? What did it look like during that time period?
0: Well, during the uh, 18th century, um, immigration law took the form of Commerce Clause cases because the federal and state levels were fighting it out about which level of government gets to control immigration law. So a lot of those court cases don't look like immigration cases as we understand it today. The Commerce Clause cases about, you know, can the state of New York uh, restrict or, or, you know, tell shipmasters ship that they have to release a list of their passengers, and if the passenger is is too poor or too sickly, to support themselves, that the shipmaster has to return them to where they came from at their own expense. So, you know, the the these early cases about the co- are about the constitutionality of states putting up barriers to admitting immigrants.
1: And is there a, is there a seminal case that the Supreme Court rules on during during this time period? Is there a case that that draws scholars' attention um, that that defines the way the courts viewed immigration? uh... during the eighteen hundred is there something that that uh... is seminal in that way
0: there's not one there's a series of cases that uh... show the influence of police powers doctrine which is the idea that the states retain some control over which immigrants they can keep out and basically it's anyone that is going to threaten the health and safety of the state the seminal case i would say for most immigration scholars um, is the Chinese exclusion case, Xi Ping versus United States, decided in 1882. And the reason that case is important is this is the turning point where previously the states almost exclusively ran immigration policy. 1882 marks the point where the federal government takes over.
1: It's so interesting, given what's happening right now with the states and the courts and, and immigration. Um, But another point that that you make in the book is about this, the evolution between these two courts Mm -hmm. and and how a division of labor uh, begins to appear. Um, What is the division of labor that that, that, uh, begins to to come into shape as the turn of the century occurs? Um, What are the two courts focusing on and, and, and why does that happen?
0: So both uh, courts, the Supreme Court and the courts of appeals, are technically appellate courts, meaning they don't try cases and bring in witnesses. Appellate courts are, are just uh, looking at the record of the court below them that actually tried the case. And appellate courts are supposed to just decide based on a paper record, not by calling witnesses again, whether the lower courts made a mistake or not or whether they were correct. So the founding, you know, the, you look at the founding literature and no one, the framers had no good idea what these institu- institutions were going to look like. It just looked like two courts of appeals, but over time, because of the caseload, not just the immigration caseload, but, you know, these courts or courts of general jurisdiction, they hear all kinds of cases, tax, criminal um administrative cases, the range of cases. The range of cases changed the function of each court. Basically, the courts of appeals uh, continued to be an error correction court in that they were looking for mistakes made by the lower levels. But the Supreme Court turned into something else because that court uh, gained control, uh, gained certiorari power, meaning that that's the only court in the judicial hierarchy that gets to pick and choose which cases it hears. So it would be like me and you, Heath, you know, in a big class saying, I only want to grade the papers of the students with red hair. Um, So they have that authority. And over time, the Supreme Court has turned into a policy court and less of a error correction court.
1: And what are the implications for for immigrants and immigrant rights and, and immigrants that are bringing cases of this division of labor, are they more likely to be successful in in one court or the other?
0: Well, everyone focuses you know the entire field of political science and judicial uh, process uh, the The major theory for explaining court outcomes is the judge 's ideology it 's called the attitudinal model. And what I'm arguing is it's not that the attitudinal model is unimportant, but it's the level of the courts that the judges sit at that is equally important because the institutional context uh, at each level sort of shapes how the judges perceive how they're supposed to do their job. What this means for immigrants is, they have a better chance of prevailing at the Courts of Appeals level than at the Supreme Court level. Uh, the, the, the reason why that is, um, at the Courts of Appeals level, because those courts are still looking for mistakes, mistakes of procedural due process, mistakes you know in, in, in the, the cases, they're treating the immigrants as individuals. But once that case goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is more attuned to, OK, well, you know, I'm going to use you, Mr. Che Chan Ping, as a representative of an entire class of immigrants, meaning all Chinese immigrants at the time. And I, I don't have the luxury of focusing on just the you know, details of your case, because I realize at the Supreme Court that I'm making law for the entire country. So political and policy considerations come in much more into the consideration of Supreme Court justice than at the courts of appeals.
1: Now, as we move into the 20th century um, and the patterns of immigration in the country change and the, the, the array of laws change, um, the courts uh, respond. Um, I wonder if we could sort of take our take ourselves to the 1960s. And, and the passage of the major immigration law in, in 1965, and, and, and talk a little bit about what, what that law did, and then, and then we'll talk about some of the consequences for the courts and also the consequences of that law for what's being ruled on right now. So um, maybe you could give us your, your snapshot of, of the, the 1965 law.
0: Okay, so the 1965 law, very much consistent with the other major voting rights and civil rights acts, it gets rid of uh, discrimination in our immigration system. Huge irony that we're talking about this law at this point in time because the United States immigration system used to country profile people, national, secu- uh, national origins discrimination, right? That you were desirable because you came from a certain country uh, and not because of your individual characteristics. In 65, this is a watershed piece of legislation where the United States immigration system is now national origins neutral, and we select people uh, based on employment skills they have that U.S. employers may need and also their close relationship to U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents.
1: Now, this would all seem to make the current case that the courts are addressing right now um unambiguous and and easy to rule on. Um, is that the case, or is there anything else in that law that that will make ruling on uh, the current um, immigration uh, executive order a little bit uh, different?
0: Well, what that you know sixty five law also did is uh, to set up the legal challenge uh, we have with the Trump administration today because it greatly diversifies the immigration stream coming to the United States. Before the 65 Act, all the immigration was from mainly Western Europe. After 65, the entire stream of immigration shifts decisively to Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America, North America. Um, So the diversity of immigration opened up by the 65 Act actually leads us to the kind of cultural conflicts that we see today in today's legal challenge.
1: And and the the law also empowers the president certain um, emergency or national security powers as well. Uh, is that something that's that's in the law or is that an interpretation uh, of what the law says? That's that's uh, another issue on the table right now, right?
0: Right. That's a different law, a different act passed by Congress, and it's uh, there's this idea that dominates U.S. immigration law called congressional plenary power. And it it means that the judicial branch shows great deference to the Congress uh, and the executive in this particular area of law. In in other, you know, if you talk about criminal, the rights of criminal defendants, the courts very aggressively challenge the executive and, and uh, legislative branches, but not in immigration where they're highly deferential. They almost roll over and play dead. So in that respect, I mean, Trump is correct that the federal courts have often given uh, U.S. presidents great latitude and leeway to do what they want, especially if it's an issue of national security merging with immigration.
1: Now, that that would suggest a, a direction that the courts are going to rule. We don't we don't know exactly what the, the rulings will be. but But what do you what do you anticipate based upon what you've learned from your book um, what you know about the the, the array of, of, of laws on the books and also uh, executive actions that are being taken about about how how the courts and the current administration and immigration are going to interact what do you see in the in the near future
0: well reading tea leaves is very dangerous but uh, the case that everyone has their eyes on now is a challenge coming to the Trump uh ex- immigration executive order coming out of the state of Washington that is currently at the U.S. Courts of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is out west. I interviewed eight judges from that circuit. And um, from my book findings, I can say that the Ninth Circuit judges, they know immigration. It's, you know, as of 2006, it was 37 percent of their entire docket the Ninth Circuit handles more than 50% of the immigration appeals nationwide. So they know the subject very, very well. Um, It is hard for me to predict how they're going to rule based on the oral argument I heard uh, the other night that the rest of the country also listened in on. You know, the entire country was on the same conference call. But if I had to make some predictions, I don't think everyone's going to get I don't think one side or the other is going to win because there's so many issues at stake. Um, I think that the course of appeals judges, even the Republican appointed Judge Clifton, was very skeptical of some of the government's arguments, but then equally skeptical of the state of Washington challenging the president's authority on an issue of national security. So, I think it could you know I cannot tell definitively from the oral arguments, but um it's quite quite clear that you know whichever party loses, they will appeal to the supreme court
1: it it's, It seems like an an amazing point uh, at which to be studying and thinking about immigration policy, but also uh, immigration law uh, Anna Law's book is the Immigration Battle in American Courts. Uh, The book is published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, It is, is timely and also available in paperback as well. So I hope that everybody gets the chance to read it. Anna, thank you so much for your time today.
0: This was so much fun. Thank you.